Last but not least, I do want to invite up our Pastor Allison to come and uh, preach this morning. So let's welcome her as she comes. Good morning, everyone. Um, as, <laughs> as Mike mentioned, my name is Allison, and I am the executive pastor here at the River. So good to be with you today. So we're currently in a sermon series called The Good Life. We are taking some time to consider what makes for a happy life, a fulfilling life, a good life. As I thought about what to talk about for the sermon today, it struck me that even when we are intentional about pursuing a good life, obstacles outside of our control can stand in the way. I couldn't help but think about the many hardships and losses I've personally experienced over the last few years, not to mention those facing all of us collectively. How do we pursue the good life when things are constantly shifting and changing and tragedy may be just around the corner? How do we live in the reality that life can be both beautiful and terrible? without moving into the extremes of either utter hopelessness or toxic positivity. What do we do when our version of the good life falls apart? How do we move forward with openness? There are no easy answers to these questions, but I think that there is a book in the Bible, the book of Ruth, that can help us think through some of these questions. So I'm going to start by giving an overview of the whole story, and then I will go back and focus in on a couple parts that I think are particularly important. So to help you follow along, there'll be some images up behind me, um, and these come from the Bible Project. So the story begins with a famine in the land of Judah. Because of the famine, Naomi, her husband, and two sons left Bethlehem and settled in the land of Moab. Sometime after they settled, Naomi's husband passed away, leaving Naomi with her two sons. Naomi's sons went on to marry local Moabite women. Their names were Orpah and Ruth. Unfortunately, after about 10 years, tragedy struck again and both of Naomi's sons passed away. Left without the protection or economic support of her husband and sons, Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem. Naomi had heard that food had returned to the land and wanted to return to her people. Naomi urged her daughters-in-law to remain in Moab and to remarry to ensure their own protection and economic security. Orpah agreed to follow Naomi's advice. However, Ruth refused to be parted from Naomi. This is where we get this famous speech from Ruth. Ruth said to Naomi, do not press me to leave you, to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do thus to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. 
So Naomi agreed to let Ruth accompany her, and the two traveled together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth needed to figure out how to provide for themselves. Ruth decided to go out into the fields where the barley harvest had started and to ask permission to glean. Gleaning is a practice where those in need gather leftover crops from farmers' fields after they have been harvested. As she gathered the grain, Ruth met a man named Boaz. The Bible describes Boaz as a prominent rich man who was a kinsman of Naomi on her husband's side. Boaz had heard about Ruth and was impressed with her. He admired Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and all that she had given up to stay with her mother-in-law by leaving her parents and homeland behind. And so he provided Ruth with a meal to eat and water to drink. He instructed the young men in the field not to bother her, and he gave her permission to glean even among the standing sheaves. When Ruth returned to Naomi, she shared about her good fortune. Naomi praised God and explained to Ruth that Boaz was a relative of theirs, one of their nearest kin. And so Ruth continued to live with Naomi and to glean from Boaz's fields. As Naomi began to think about how to ensure Ruth's long-term security, she came up with a plan. Naomi encouraged Ruth to approach Boaz and to ask him to marry and provide for her as her kinsman redeemer. In this cultural context, a kinsman redeemer was the next of kin who was responsible for upholding certain family rights, such as avenging a murdered family member or providing for a relative who was in debt or facing helpless circumstances. So Ruth did as Naomi instructed and approached Boaz with her request, and Boaz agreed. Ruth and Boaz were married and went on to have a son named Obed. The Bible tells us that Obed would go on to be the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, thus placing this story within the larger story of God's movement in the world. Okay, so now that we've heard the whole story, got the overview, I want us to take a look at a couple key moments in the story. There are two moments when Naomi interacted with the women of Bethlehem. The first was when Naomi and Ruth arrived in town, and the second was after Obed was born. The story says, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So in order to understand this passage, we need to pay particular attention to the names that are being used. Names in the Bible are often significant, giving us insight into a person's identity or purpose. The name Naomi means to be pleasant, delightful, or lovely. Mara, on the other hand, means bitter. 
Naomi's loss of beloved family members, of stability, and of economic security led her to become bitter. She was so consumed by her grief and fear and resentment that she didn't recognize herself anymore. And who could blame her, given all that she had suffered? Naomi was wrestling with her own identity in this difficult season of her life. She may have wondered, is this who I am now? Is this what my life will always be like going forward? Are there any more good things in store for me? Interestingly, despite Naomi's request to be called Mara, we do not see this name pop up again in the story. To me, this indicates that Naomi's bitterness was something that she was eventually able to move through. It indicates that bitterness did not become the permanent, defining feature of her identity. Somehow, Naomi was able to move through the pain and open herself up again to delight. In Naomi's interaction with the woman, we also see Naomi wrestling with her understanding of God. Just like with Naomi, it is helpful for us to look at the names for God being used here. There are many different words used to refer to God throughout the Bible. Each of them helps us to understand a different aspect of God's character. In this passage, we see two of these words, the Almighty and the Lord. In English, it is not necessarily apparent uh, what these two words are saying about God, but there is a clear difference in the Hebrew. When God is referred to as the Almighty, or El Shaddai, there's an emphasis on God's power and ability to bestow blessings. When God is referred to as the Lord, or Yahweh, there's an emphasis on God's covenantal relationship with the Israelites, God's commitment to free, redeem, and provide for God's people. That Naomi uses both El Shaddai and Yahweh in her speech, each of them two times, points to a kind of internal wrestling. It's like she was saying, God, I know you have the power to help me, but will you? Can I count on you? Are you trustworthy? Do you really care? Maybe you can relate to these questions. I know that I can. As the story progresses, we see glimpses of Naomi's movement forward. A key one was when she praised God after learning of Ruth's first encounter with Boaz. The passage says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he, meaning Boaz, by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi interpreted Boaz's kindness toward Ruth, and by extension Naomi, as a sign of God's kindness and commitment to God's people. Note that Naomi referred to God here as Yahweh, not El Shaddai. In that moment, at least, where there was a sign of hope, Naomi believed that God was the covenantal God who keeps promises. At the end of the story, Naomi had another interaction with the women of Bethlehem. The passage says, 
So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. After all that Naomi had suffered, the women were excited to celebrate Naomi's positive change in circumstances, which they attributed to God's, Yahweh's, provision. The woman pointed to the newfound blessings in Naomi's life, the support of her kinship redeemer Boaz, the great love and loyalty of her daughter-in-law Ruth, and the gift of the relationship she would be able to build with her new grandson. All of these things were worth celebrating and praising God for. And yet, it is interesting to me that it was the women singing these praises to God, not Naomi herself. We can only speculate as to why this was the case, but I wonder, was this moment purely celebratory for Naomi, or was it somewhat bittersweet? Was Naomi missing her husband and sons? Was Naomi fearful that these blessings, like those of the past, would also disappear prematurely? Had Naomi ever had a chance to really process and grieve all that she had lost? Or had she been stuck in survival mode? If you Google, what is the book of Ruth about? Uh, Many of the results will tell you that it is a story about moving from bitterness to blessing. This reading of the story is true on some level. Ruth is bitter at the beginning. Sorry, I mean Naomi um, is bitter at the beginning of the story and later experiences newfound blessings. And the alliteration of, you know, bitter to blessing is admittedly quite nice. However, I challenge the conclusions that many of these readers reached. Their conclusions that just because the story ended with redemption, all is well in Naomi's world. As satisfying as it is to tie up a story neatly in this way, it doesn't quite mesh with my experience of what it's really like to live in our world. Certainly, beauty can come out of brokenness, and we can find silver linings and things to be grateful for even in the darkest of times. But that doesn't mean that our losses have been wholly restored or the impacts of our suffering have been completely erased. The truth is more complicated. Joy and sorrow simply coexist. For me, Naomi's silence at the end of the story is a sign that she was living in the midst of this complexity. 
The woman may have been eager to tie things up neatly, to look on the bright side, to put the tragedy that they themselves had not experienced firsthand behind them. But maybe Naomi wasn't quite there yet. Have you ever been in that place where those in your life were urging you to move on and count your blessings while you were still counting your losses? In their book, Good Enough, Kate Bowler, author and professor at Duke Divinity School and her co-writer Jessica Ritchie explore why this impulse to count our losses can actually be incredibly healthy. In the book they wrote, loss requires us to reimagine hope. But before hope comes acknowledgement. Let us count not only our blessings but our losses. That might sound negative to people accustomed to leaning on optimism, but there are good reasons for starting with a deep accounting of loss. Honesty allows us a moment to pause and take stock before we forge ahead. Bowler and Ritchie caution that if we do not take the time to honestly take stock of our losses and to understand their impacts on us, we may end up experiencing something called identity foreclosure. When this happens, we can get stuck in a form of tunnel vision, only able to picture the future we had imagined for ourselves, unable to envision new, life-giving possibilities. To get ourselves unstuck, we must first be honest with ourselves about all that we have lost and all the things that we had hoped for that will never come to be. This brings me to my first practical suggestion. Give yourself time and space to grieve your losses. For some of us, this is a natural practice. But for others of us, it requires some intentionality. Bowler and Ritchie give this advice. When you cannot have the future you imagined, let the tears flow. Let yourself mourn. Pour out your grief in all its truth, with all your power, in whatever form comes. With words, or songs, or talking with friends long walks, or screaming into the void. Let it out, tell God the whole of it, even though it hurts, and especially the honest, angry parts. Anger is our soul's sentry, put there to protect our boundaries and the vulnerabilities we carry. There is a time to mourn. Let it take up as much space as it needs. Your future self can wait. I can't help but ask, what might have it been like for Naomi if she had ever had the safety to do this? Her precarious situation did not afford her the space to do so, but it makes me wonder, would she have still found herself in places of bitterness and voicelessness? My second practical suggestion is this. Be intentional about practicing non-toxic gratitude. By non-toxic gratitude, I mean gratitude that is authentic and not used to numb or suppress difficult feelings. 
just like genuine grief can help free us from bitterness, so too can genuine gratitude. And just like with expressing grief, gratitude is a practice that comes easily to some of us and requires intentionality from others of us. If you need to grow in this area, start by identifying one thing each day that you're truly grateful for. It can be something profound or something incredibly simple. As this practice becomes more natural, challenge yourself to start making longer lists. In addition to helping us move through bitterness, the experience of gratitude is associated with many mental and physical benefits. Studies have shown that feeling thankful can improve sleep, mood, and immunity. Gratitude can decrease depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and risk of disease. With all those benefits, it's worth giving gratitude practice a try. I'd like to leave you with one final suggestion, a book recommendation. Recently, I was introduced to a wonderful book. Uh, thank you, Emily Noto, for that. Um, the book is called Dear God, Honest Prayers to a God Who Listens. And it was written by Boonmi Laditan. The amazing thing about this book is that the prayers are so honest and vulnerable. They put voice to so many things I've felt over the years but couldn't quite express in words. And reading them has been freeing me up to be more honest with myself and with God about what I really think and about how I really feel. To find the words to count both my losses and my blessings. I highly recommend giving this book a read. So to end this sermon today, and as the worship team comes back up, I'm going to share one of Laudaton's prayers and then one of my own. Feel free. Yeah. <laughs> Laudaton wrote, Dear God, I decided not to believe in you. I was upset, devastated actually, tired of feeling like I'm speaking into empty air. But that's not true. I can feel you almost all the time. I was tired of being in pain. You could have rescued me if you wanted to, but you didn't. That made me so sad and angry. So I renounced you in my soul and turned my back for three solid hours. Did you miss me? I'm still kind of mad. And I, Allison, pray, <clears throat> God, help us to be honest like Boonmi Laditan honest with you and also with ourselves. Be with us as we wrestle with who we've been, who we are now, as well as who you've been and who you promise to be. Help us not to lose ourselves in bitterness, but give us the strength to grieve and be grateful all at once. Amen.